instructed this morning, you have heard the gospel through several songs that we have sung, preparing you even for the word of God. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation. It's Revelation chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the first two verses, Revelation chapter 11. John has been an observer of God's plans for his creation, both redemptive and judicial, up to chapter 10. Now, the Apostle John during that time has acted as a scribe. He has acted as a scribe for Jesus Christ. The risen Jesus has told him what to write and what not to write. But in chapter 10 and chapter 11, John is actually participating in the vision that he sees, that he beholds. In chapter 10, you you remember from last week that there was a mighty angel, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, representing Christ's dominion over all the world. He had in his hand a little scroll that was open, and he told John to eat it. And John went over, took the little scroll from the, the powerful angel's hand, and he ate it. And it was sweet like honey, but when he got it into his stomach, when he digested it, it turned bitter. When we look at that scroll, the scroll was sweet in his mouth because the living word, Christ Jesus, who has paid the penalty for our sin brings us into communion with God so that even God's pronouncement of woes have a sweetness to them because we understand the source and that God is good in all that he does. In all that he says, he is good. And there is that trust there. There is that joy of knowing that out of God's goodness we have communion with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. But as we digest what God is revealing to us, as we digest the reality that in this scroll there are judgments that will lead to suffering and pain. Suffering and pain because the message that goes out, the gospel message that goes out into the world is not always going to be received. It's not going to be received by everybody. And those who don't receive it can even be hostile against it. And so the bitterness is when the gospel goes out, you would expect in such a great salvation, everyone would receive it. But not everyone does. Some have obstinate minds and hardened hearts. And because of that, the gospel never even penetrates, but is taken away by the evil one. That generates bitterness. That turns our stomachs when we contemplate the judgment that they will undergo because of their obstinance. Here in chapter 11, the Apostle John is also participating. He is told to take a measuring stick and measure the temple. What is this temple? What is this temple? that he is called upon to measure. Let's look at God's word. Just the first two verses. John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told 
Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. So he's to take measure, not only of the temple, its size, but more specifically of the amount of people who are worshiping there. We would consider them the elect of God. He says, so go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would instruct our hearts through your holy word. May your word speak through me, Lord, and strengthen your people. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. What is this temple? Is it a physical edifice? Perhaps one torn down in AD 70? Is this temple something that is yet to be built? As some think. Well, if that's the case, why is John measuring the temple in the first century AD? It's almost 2,000 years later, and the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD has never been rebuilt. There's a foundation there, but there's no Jewish temple on top of it, that's for sure. Is this temple spiritual in nature? If that is the case, is John using physical symbols to describe a spiritual reality? Since he's been doing that thus far, (laughs) I think we can posture that that would be a plausible reality. Especially when Jesus said to the Jews in John 2 verse 19, destroy this temple, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What did the Jews think he was talking about? They thought he was talking about the actual physical temple, the one made of stone. But Jesus was not talking about that temple. He was talking about his own body, which houses the temple, which is the house of God. In other words, Jesus is God. The temple in Jesus' day was a magnificent building, but it was spiritually empty inside. That is because the real temple of God, again, was Jesus' own body. Hence, when the Apostle John is given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, what is John explaining? What is being symbolized here? I think in a general sense, this scene symbolizes God's presence with his people as they worship and serve him in a world filled with trouble. As to the temple, how many passages in Scripture speak to you and I as Christians being the body of Christ? It's not only that Christ's body is the temple of God because it houses God's Spirit, it is also that we who are united to Christ are also part of His body and therefore a spiritual household. Those who house the Spirit of God. Of God. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 
16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. The foundation or basis for you being that God's temple is that his Spirit lives in you through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You have different gifts and abilities given to you by the Spirit, but all who are baptized into Christ Jesus are under his authority, and thus preserving power through faith in him. As Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. To be in Christ means you have accepted Jesus' sacrifice, his offering of his life on the cross as payment for your own sin. You need to understand that your rap sheet and my rap sheet before God contains every sinful thought that we have ever had. It contains every action sinful action we have ever committed, even every sinful attitude that took residence in our heart. All of that is on record. And when it talks about everyone giving an account to the Lord on the day of judgment, there will be an accounting. Everything that you have done adds up and it will be evidence against you before the Lord of glory who is the judge of all creation, even of the cosmos. So no amount of self-abasing or self-cleansing can make us pure enough to justify our relationship with a holy God. Theologian Joe Anity explains the fullness of what is going on here just in verse 1 of Revelation 11. He states, When the fullness of time had come, God the Son tabernacled amongst us in the Incarnation, through the person of Jesus Christ. The temple of his body was indeed destroyed as he offered himself up for his people, but he was raised on the third day. The veil in the earthly temple was torn in two. He then ascended to the Father, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And Jesus the Christ, who is our great high priest, did not leave us orphans, but has sent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit which filled the old covenant temple with the glory cloud, now fills the church. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He continues by, by referencing Paul's writings. He said it is interesting, I think, that every time the word temple, Greek word is naos, is used in Paul's writings, it is used in reference to Christians or to the church and not to the physical and Jewish temple. It is always related to you as the temple of God, as the body of Christ. So what is this temple? You yourselves are God's temple as God's Spirit lives in you as the body of Christ. 
Of course, as God's temple, we need to examine our hearts on a daily basis because we still struggle with sin. We need to make sure that the offerings that we bring before the Lord God Almighty are pleasing to Him. So again, that that calls for self-examination on a daily basis. I'm reminded of the song from the group Casting Crowns who sang, If we are the body, meaning the body of Christ, why aren't his arms reaching? If we are his body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? And if we are the body of Christ, why aren't his feet going? When the Great Commission tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, are we doing that? And if not, why not? Why is his love not showing them there is a way when Jesus is the way? Are we being the body of Christ? Along with God's presence is, of course, his protective care of his people as we're leaning into verse 2. Now God's protection or, or protection of you does not mean that as a follower of Christ Jesus you will not endure suffering in this life or even trials. On the, on the contrary, God has purpose even in the trials and sufferings that you must go through. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And let's look just at the first two verses. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul speaks of our being justified through faith in the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ Jesus, you receive the unmerited righteousness of Christ, which places you in right standing before God, thus You rejoice in the glory of God to make all things new, including you. That there will be a day that you and I have to look forward to where sin will be no more. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. We will no longer have to deal with the presence and power of evil. The curse will be no more. And we will be perfect and reconciled to God, having peace with God, not just for a season, but throughout all eternity. That's what he's talking about there. That's the hope that he's addressing. And that's where Paul stops, right? No, there's more verses after that, aren't there? Look at verses 3 through 5. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Did you hear that? We also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. 
So we not only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we also rejoice in our sufferings. You know what he's saying here? We, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God to make us new, to transform us, and to remove all spot of sin, the presence of evil, even the stain of the curse, remove it all from us. But God is also working to cleanse us and transform our lives right now through the, the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us. And there is a struggle with sin. If you read Romans 7 you see that Paul recognizes in his body that he, he doesn't do the things he ought to do, but the things he ought not to do. And the things he ought not to do, these things he does. Because there's a law of, of sin that's still wrestling with the law of the Spirit, the, the governing power of the Spirit in his life. And it's only through the grace of Christ Jesus who will rescue him from this body of death that he takes heart. And this rescuing process is sanctification, which means that sometimes, oftentimes, we have to struggle, we have to suffer, so that we can learn to put to death these things that we, we formerly desired and enjoyed. I remember Dr. Brian Chappell saying about sin that we don't sin because it's painful to us or we hate our sin. We sin because we love it. We enjoy it. That's why we sin. How do you give up something that you love and enjoy? You have to be made such that you don't enjoy it anymore. That's where suffering comes in. When your eyes are open and you realize the damage that this stuff does, the hurt that it causes, the pain, that's where suffering comes in turning you away from your sinful ways to Christ and looking to Him. What is the phrase athletes are fond of saying when we think of suffering producing perseverance? I think it's called no pain, no gain, right? Same thing is true for the Christian life. I wish it were otherwise but God's dealing with our sinful natures. And this is how he needs to draw us to himself, to enable us to persevere, to learn that we are weak instead of strong and that he is strong instead of weak. And the more we learn to trust in him, the stronger we become. The stronger our Christian character becomes, our Christian resolve to serve and honor him. And the greater is our hope and expectation that the one who began that perfect work in us will see it to completion. There is that sense of assurance that comes with it. That we know Christ is working in our lives. We know the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. And because he's working in our lives and we are growing in faith in Christ, he's going to keep us even to the day when we see him face to face and forevermore. So we see in Revelation 11, verse 2, that suffering and trials are signified here by John being told not to measure the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles, to the nations. And he says that they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 
The symbolism means that God's people will suffer trials and tribulations in this world between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Now to be clear, the symbols that we're looking at here, the temple, its courts, and the holy city symbolizes the church, the body of Christ. They symbolize all who are in Christ Jesus. This process of John measuring uh, the temple, the altar, and those who worship there harkens back to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, where the temple and city in Ezekiel uh, are eternally secured by God. That's the whole point of measuring it. Those who are in that city are secured by God. As John harkens back to these chapters, he is using it as a metaphor for God's eternal protection and preservation of his people. Again, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, what? Never ceasing. Never ceasing. So in Revelation 11, verse 2, the leaving out of the outer court and the holy city to be trampled by the nation signifies the church's vulnerability in regards to suffering. We see that in church history, don't we? Since Jesus cried out, it is finished, the church has suffered at the hands of secular society. The church is both secured by the power of God and yet vulnerable in this world. As we work through the book of Revelation, you will notice that this is a theme that permeates the entire book. So before we go any further, we need to remember that John's book of Revelation was first received by who? First century Christians. That was the first audience who received these letters, this book. This book of Revelation addresses how things will go with all people, but especially with those who follow Christ Jesus in the time, again, between the first and second comings of Christ. The first time Jesus came into this world was as a lamb, representing the grace of God given through that sacrifice for sin. The second time he comes, it will be as a lion, as a judge, who will place everyone under his feet, who are his enemies, and secure eternal security and bliss for his people. So we are still in the age of God's grace. So what are what were John's first visions about? John was shown how the churches were operating in his day as they were called to proclaim the gospel of one on one hand and face persecution on the other. The risen Christ Jesus had words of counsel for all seven churches. And after this revelation, chapter 4, verse 1 says, And I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Although there are exceptions in the book of Revelation where some visions specifically depict what will happen on the last day as things will intensify, the greater balance of the book of Revelation symbolizes in general how life will be in this world for those who follow Christ Jesus. Hence, any Christian living in at any time between Jesus Christ dying on the cross and being raised from the grave and his second coming uh, should be able to see what is depicted here in the pages of God's word at work in the world today. 
So there are rumors of wars and wars. We see that today, don't we? Did we see that 50 years ago? 100 years ago? 200 years ago? Yes. There are wars and rumors of wars. Are there famines today? Yes. Are there trials today? Yes. Is the evil one still at work today? Of course he is. Yet God in his mercy restrains him. And he keeps. He does not lose any who belong to him. The reason God keeps those who belong to him is because they are secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul describes in Romans 8 what John is saying here in Revelation 11. And I want you to consider verses 31 through 39, especially as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans uh, 8, 31 through 39, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? We know those in the world who want to trample the church underfoot will bring up all kinds of trumped-up charges, just like they did with Jesus trying to lead him to his crucifixion. But they are not the ultimate authority. They are not the ultimate judge. God is. So who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is he who condemns, in other words, comes in judgment when he comes again. It is he who died more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and throughout the whole cosmos? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, trampled on by the nations. No, even though this is the case, even though the church is vulnerable in one sense, it is invulnerable in another. As Paul continues, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, looking at Revelation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, this is the revelation of Christ that if Christ is in you, if you, are, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then there is nothing in this world or in heaven 
or in existence that can separate you from his love. Because you are secured not only now, but forever in him as those who are part of his body, even his holy temple in which his spirit dwells. I would ask that the elders come forward at this time. This supper are for all who are in good standing in any evangelical church who have made profession of faith in Jesus Christ, are not under discipline, and trust the Lord.